Good evening, church. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? I've already caught myself saying good morning a couple times, so you'll have to cut me a little slack if I mess it up. But welcome to the first ever PCC 6 o'clock service. This will be fun, and I hope that in a couple weeks, we got to get those dividers out of here. So keep telling people about it, and I hope this will be a helpful thing for you. I want to start this evening just by asking you a question. What do you do when life gets out of control? What do you do when life gets out of control? When your kids are crazy, or when you're not sure where the money's gonna come from, when you can barely keep up at work, when maybe the medical treatments don't seem to be working, or maybe your marriage is growing more and more distant, or you can't seem to find the time to get everything done, or someone you love is straying from the path, or maybe life just isn't turning out the way you thought it would. What do you do when life gets out of control? We're going to take a look at that question today by looking at a time in the history of the Israelites when life got out of control for them. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and so far in the book of Exodus, we've seen God call this guy named Moses to go back to Egypt, and Moses goes to Egypt, he tells Pharaoh to let the Israelite slaves go, and God sends these 10 plagues on Egypt, and he parts the Red Sea, the Israelites walk through on dry land, and finally, they're free at last, they are their own people. And you'd think it'd just be smooth sailing from there on out, right? Not a cloud in the sky or a bump in the road. Well, not quite. Because God sends them into the desert. Because they have to learn who he is. They have to learn how to trust him. They have to learn how to follow him. And sometimes the best place to do that is the desert. And so here we are in Exodus chapter 15, only three short days since God's parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites are already whining. Check this out, verses 22 through 27. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. Now, most of the springs in this area of the desert have a lot of mineral salts dissolved in the water. The water's really bitter. It also carries some laxative qualities, and nobody has time for that in the middle of the desert. (laughs) says, so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you carefully listen to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to all his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped near the water. So God's saying to the people, easy there. (laughs) Be careful now. Because Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they saw my power over and over and over again, but they failed to trust me, so don't you make the same mistake. And in response to the Israelites' lack of faith, their whining and grumbling and complaining, what does he do? He provides for them. He gives them water. And not only that, but he leads them to a beautiful oasis where they get to camp out for a few weeks and have all of their needs met. So God provides The Israelites learn the lesson and everybody lives happily ever after, right? Well, not quite. Exodus chapter 16. God in the pillar of cloud leads the people back away from the oasis and out into the desert again. Verses two and three says this. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. 
So it's only been a month after they've been set free and they've already forgotten about the scars on their backs from the whips of their Egyptian slave masters and the Israelites are dreaming about life back in Egypt. It says the Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt because there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. <laughs> I mean, this is just ridiculous. How's God going to deal with this nonsense? He's surely going to teach him a lesson now, right? Verses four and five. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. That is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So the people, again, they whine, they grumble, they complain because they're hungry. And what does God do? He provides for them. He feeds them. He sends down manna, bread from heaven. We're talking today about God's provision. God is a provider, a gracious, merciful, patient provider. Look at what he does. Verses 13 through 35. It says, that evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. It's the original frosted flakes for breakfast. <laughs> when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. An omer is a measurement. It's not quite a gallon. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had just as much as they needed. God is a provider. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it till morning. So what do you think they did? <laughs> However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever's left and keep it till morning. This is the first time, by the way, that we see the word Sabbath in the Bible. It's a word meaning to cease or to stop. It's a day of rest. Very, very important. It says, so they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said. Because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Now surely they listened and obeyed this time, right? Well, nevertheless, <laughs> some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the people called the bread manna, 
The word manna comes from the Hebrew phrase for what is it? <laughs> Real creative people, these Hebrews. It says it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. So it's not bland stuff. This is good food. It's tasty bread. It's like God's delivering donuts every morning. He's a good provider. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded Take an omer of manna and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. So God sends these miraculous sweet flakes of bread on the ground and everybody just runs out from the camp and starts grabbing bread. It's like a community Easter egg hunt, except there's enough for everybody. And somebody did the math and they said that for 2 million Israelites to get an omer each of manna, an omer is about six pints, it would take four freight trains each one of them 60 cars long just to deliver the daily manna. Nine million pounds of it every single day. And yet there's more than enough for everybody. God's a provider. And yet even this provision of manna is a test for the Israelites because God tells them to only get enough for today. Just today. Don't put any in your bag to keep for a snack tomorrow. Just get enough for today. No more, no less. It's a test because God's asking them, hey, do you trust me to provide for you? Do you trust that I'm going to show up again tomorrow morning and give you what you need? And every morning when the people woke up, boom, wonder bread on the ground. And every weekend, a double miracle, enough for two days. Of course, some people just couldn't resist getting a little bit extra. They'd keep a little bit back, trying to keep it for tomorrow, maybe trying to build up some free stock so they could start a small business or something. You know, you could make manna pies, manna cupcakes. You could uh, do diet manna if you took out the sugar. Even make a manna cookbook, 101 ways to manage your manna. If you're really good, you could even do manna deliveries right up to your tent flap. And yet every time they take a little bit of extra, it rots. Trust me, God's saying. I'll give you enough, just enough for today. And God even tells the people to keep just a little bit of manna to save for later generations to see so that someday down the road when a little girl asks her mommy, Mommy, what's in that box? She'll say, well, honey, there's manna in there. What's manna? <laughs> well, we didn't know what manna was either, honey, but it was this bread from heaven that God sent down every day while we were in the desert to feed us. You know, God always takes care of us. And so the Israelites finally learn to depend on God, right? Well, not so fast, chapter 17. <laughs> God leads the people again to a place where there is nothing to drink. It's as if God is saying, all right, hey, let's try this water thing just one more time and see what y'all have learned by now. But it ends up being same song, second verse, a little bit louder and a whole lot worse. Verses one through seven. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. But Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt and make, to make us and our children die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, this is crazy, right? By this point, God has given these people food and water every single time they needed it. They are being led by God himself every day in a pillar of cloud, and yet these people have the audacity to ask, is God really with us or not? And yet again, though, God graciously provides. He gives them water to drink, water from a rock. And yet, despite proof after proof after proof, the people still fail to trust God. They still doubt him. And so that brings us back to our question for this evening. What do you do when life gets out of control? Can I give you three things real quick from this story that I think we tend to do when life gets out of control? First thing is this. Sometimes we worry. We worry. That's what the Israelites did when their stomachs started rumbling. They started to worry. It's no big secret that we live in a world that is plagued by worry and stress. In fact, the average high school student today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. That's a fact. We worry. We live in a world of worry. And yet the thing about worry is that worry is fundamentally a lack of faith. It's failing to trust God. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't worry. Trust God. Our son Judah is a year and a half old now. And it's amazing because a lot of the things that would worry an adult don't seem to worry Judah one little bit. I mean, Judah doesn't lay awake at night wondering how Rebecca and I are going to pay for his college. <laughs> he doesn't get all stressed out and anxious wondering where the next meal is going to come from. No, he, he just lays down in his crib at night and goes to sleep. He wakes up the next morning, puts his arms up and says, Breakfast? Because <laughs> he just trusts that the meal's going to be there. 
He trusts that his father is going to provide. And you can too. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray, Jesus tells them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, breakfast? (laughs) Don't worry. Trust God to provide. So what do you do when life gets out of control? Sometimes we worry. Sometimes we grumble. That's what the Israelites did. They were pretty good at grumbling. You know, there's a lot of things that we see that are obviously sinful, right? We can recognize these things. Sins like lying and murder and adultery and stealing. Those things are obviously sinful. But there's a lot of other sins that tend to fly under the radar. Things like impatience and envy and gluttony and anger and grumbling. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Ouch. (laughs) I mean, how many times do I do the thing that I should do, I just grumble and complain my way through it? Well, the Bible calls that sin. And grumbling generally happens when I don't get what I want. But God never promises to give me everything that I want. He wouldn't be a very good father if he did. I'm really glad that God said no when I prayed to Mary, Abby Jeffries, in the sixth grade. (laughs) He knew what I needed. (laughs) And we have to teach this to our kids, right? The difference between wants and needs. The verse we're teaching all the kids at VBS this week is 2 Peter 1, verse 3. It says, God's power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. God's going to give you just what you need. So when you don't get exactly what you want, don't grumble. Trust God to provide. So what do you do when life gets out of control? Well, sometimes we worry, sometimes we grumble, and sometimes we hurry. That's my tendency, we hurry. Sometimes, if you're anything like me, life looks a little bit like this. What are you doing up here? I thought you were downstairs boxing chocolates. Oh, they kicked me out of there fast. Why? I kept pinching them to see what kind they were. (laughs) This is the fourth department I've been in. Oh, I didn't do so well either. All right, girls. Now, this is your last chance. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. Let her Okay. 
<laughs> Man, am I the only one who feels like that sometimes? We just hurry, 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 trying to get everything done. Except sometimes I think if we're being honest with ourselves, the reason that we hurry is that we're trying to be God. I mean, how's everything going to get done if I don't get it done? How are we, how's it all going to hold together? How's it not going to fall apart if I'm not the one holding it all together? We try to be God. Maybe that's why God made us have to sleep. Have you ever thought about it? It's kind of funny that God designed us so that we are forced to spend a third of our lives laying down doing nothing. Maybe that's so every morning we would wake up as a reminder that God handled everything just fine while we were asleep and he's going to be okay in the daytime too. Because God is God and we are not. How revealing it is then that we're living in a sleep-deprived society. In the year 1910, the average American slept nine hours a night. And in the year 2013, the average American slept only 6.8 hours per night. Because when life gets out of control, we stay up late and wake up early and hurry, 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 trying to get it all done, trying to hold everything together. We get some coffee so we can have some caffeine to get our to-do list done. Might grab a five-hour energy shot from the checkout aisle. I mean, have you guys ever read the nutrition facts on one of those things? It has 8,333% of your daily need of vitamin B12. I'm not making that up. That is not how your body was designed to operate. So when life gets out of control, instead of worrying or hurrying or grumbling, what do we do? Answer? Stop. Just stop. Specifically, two things. First one is this. Stop to remember Jesus. Stop to remember Jesus. You might remember in this story that God told the Israelites to trust him enough to take a day off every week. To rest to stop, called the Sabbath. And even though we don't have a specific Sabbath day every week anymore, it's important that we still have Sabbath in our lives, that we stop and rest specifically with the purpose of remembering, not just talking about a Netflix binge. Because one of the chief problems that the Israelites had here was that they had short memories. They forgot what God had done for them. So stop and remember Jesus. Because hundreds of years later, when Jesus came to earth, God sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And Jesus was out there in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat or drink a thing. And yeah, he got hungry. He got thirsty. Satan even showed up and tempted Jesus to take the easy way out. You see those stones over there, Jesus? Just turn those into bread and you can all be done. I know you're hungry. But Jesus remembered he remembered the story of the Israelites when they were tested and when they were hungry in the wilderness. And Jesus quoted from that story in Matthew chapter 4, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus passes the test in the desert that Israel failed. He trusted God to provide. So we stop and remember Jesus. Later on in Jesus' ministry, one evening he feeds a crowd of 5,000 people with a little bit of bread and fish, and the next morning those people wake up and they're hungry all over again, so they go looking for Jesus, hoping for some breakfast. And when they get to Jesus, he says to them in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 
Last week, we talked about typology. If you weren't here last week, you should go listen to it and how Moses was a type, a foreshadow for Jesus. Well, there's typology in this story too. The manna in this story is a type for Jesus. Jesus fulfills it. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. He says this himself in John chapter six. Those people in the wilderness, well, the ones who ate the manna, they they just got hungry again the next day. Ah, but anybody who eats the bread alive, when you get Jesus... You have everything you need. So if your life feels out of control right now, stop and remember Jesus. He's the one who provides for you. He's given you everything you need. He's given you the forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven. He's filled you with the power of his Holy Spirit. He's defeated your ultimate enemies in sin and death. He's given you a church community full of people who love you. All of your greatest needs have been met in Jesus Christ. He's the one who provides for you. And so we come to this hour every week. We come to church to stop and remember Jesus. How in Jesus Christ, our deepest hunger was filled. And a little later on, we're gonna take the bread and we're gonna take the juice and we're gonna remember that in Jesus, God provides. Stop and remember Jesus. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. Stop to remember God's provision Stop to remember God's provision that God has provided, is providing, will always provide for his creation. Author Philip Yancey writes about our failure to remember God's provision. He says this, he says, I remember my first visit to Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park. Rings of Japanese and German tourists surrounded the geyser, their video cameras trained like weapons on the famous hole in the ground. A large digital clock stood beside the spot, predicting 24 minutes before the next eruption. My wife and I passed the countdown in the dining room of Old Faithful Inn overlooking the geyser. When the digital clock reached one minute, we, along with every other diner, left our seats and rushed to the windows to see the big wet event. I noticed immediately, as if on signal, A crew of busboys and waiters descended on tables to refill water glasses and clear away dirty dishes. And when the geyser went off, we tourists oohed and awed and clicked our cameras. A few spontaneously applauded. But glancing back over my shoulders, I saw that not a single waiter or busboy, not even those who'd finished their chores, looked out the huge windows. Old faithful, grown entirely too familiar, had lost its power to impress them. Perhaps today, if your life feels out of control, instead of worrying or hurrying or grumbling, maybe you just need to stop and look out the window. Maybe you need to stop and remember God's provision. Because if you're anything like me, It can be so easy to get so wrapped up in the craziness of life that we miss the evidence of God's hand all around us. It's part of why I love being a parent, because Judah helps me see the world through eyes of wonder again. We'll be walking through the parking lot at Walmart, and I have got my mind set on milk, bread, and eggs, and that is it. But Judah's smiling and waving and saying hi to every person we pass. And we're walking on the trail to the playground, and I, my eyes are fixed on my destination. And Judah's kind of meandering around in zigzags, and he'll bend down and look in utter amazement at the trail of ants on the ground. And I'll be working in the garden, and I am pulling weeds. And Judah's digging for worms to play with. 
these amazing little creatures that oxidize our soil. And when I'm doing yard work, dandelions are the enemy. And yet to Judah, dandelions are this burst of colorful treasure, a splash of yellow on a canvas of green. What if we learned to look at the world through eyes like that again? What if we learned to look around and actually notice the amazing ways that God has provided for us? What if we took a look at the little things, just the little things? Things like a leaf. I mean, we see leaves every day. There's millions and millions of leaves all around us, and yet how often do we actually notice a leaf? A leaf is just a tiny, tender little thing. Hold it in the palm of your hand, a stiff breeze will blow it away. And yet this leaf serves an incredible purpose. This leaf takes the light and the warmth of the sun and converts it into food and sends it down to feed the roots of a mighty tree that shades the earth. This leaf sucks poison out of the air. It drinks that poison and then spews it back out into the atmosphere as oxygen so that we can breathe. That's amazing. And yet I don't pay any attention to it. And leaves, they're little things. They have a short lifespan, much like you and I. Every fall they die, fall to the ground, blow away. And yet every spring, there they are again. New life, new leaves all over again. And I barely even notice. I don't know that I've ever told God thank you for a single leaf. So maybe, just maybe, we need to slow down. To stop. To rest, to Sabbath to remember Jesus, to remember God's provision. So that's my challenge to you this week. This week, just slow down. And when you do, don't worry or hurry or grumble or whine, but remember, take a break, take a nap, bake some cookies, throw a football, climb a tree, go on a walk and leave your cell phone at home. Just slow down and remember. Remember, the God who has given you everything you need in Jesus Christ. Remember the God who gave bread and water for his people every time they needed it in the desert. Remember the God who created the world and who's actually the one holding it all together. The God who caused the sun to rise again this morning. You can trust him to provide. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this leaf. Thanks for making a beautiful world. You do a pretty good job of running it, and every time I try to, I mostly just mess it up. And so, Lord, it's my prayer for everybody in here today who might be worrying that you would impress upon them the reality of your bigness, just how strong you are, and that you would give them your peace. Strengthen their faith, Lord. And for anybody in this room who's grumbling, I ask you to convict them and bring them to repentance and give them a spirit of contentment and the joy of the Lord. And for any of us in this room who are hurrying, help us to trust you enough 
to stop. Just to stop and remember. That's what we're doing here. We are remembering your son and that you have met our deepest need through him. And that by eating the bread of life now, Lord, we have everything we need. So Jesus, we thank you for that. And it is in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. I grew up in a big family. I was number six of six kids. Uh, we lived in Fairland, Indiana, just a little bit southeast of here. I went to a small church. It was Fairland Baptist Church. That's where I was baptized. Rebecca grew up in the Christian church. Her father was a minister, and we've been a part of PCC for about 29 years. I woke up about two o'clock in the morning and I had really excruciating pain in my lower back. So we went to the emergency room and the doctor did a CT scan. And he came in afterwards and he said, well, as we expected, you have a large kidney stone. And then he said, what we didn't expect is you have a large mass in your abdomen. Honestly, it was almost like a punch in the gut. I got a call from the oncologist that I had an appointment. So I was at work and I called Rebecca and I told her, I'm coming home, I need you to come home too. So she knew. I had a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So it's a very aggressive kind of lymphoma and so I began treatments just a couple of days before Christmas in 2015, and they ended in April, and I was declared in remission at that point. But it didn't last. The day before my oldest son got married, um, I was notified that I had another mass that was actually larger than the first one. And we actually, on that day, attended the funeral visitation for a friend who passed away from ovarian cancer. So it was very surreal when we, when we went there. My doctor said the chances of this actually curing my cancer are about 50-50. And the doctor told us at that point that my best chance of survival was a stem cell transplant. I entered the hospital on November 7th and immediately began chemo at a high dose, and it was designed to kill my entire immune system. So it wiped out all of my bone marrow. And then on the seventh day, they infused my stem cells back, and my body began to redevelop an immune system. That was really rough. And as it went on, and the doctor was clear about this, it's a cumulative effect. So treatment number one wasn't as bad as when I got to treatment number six. And so at that point, I was, I was pretty sick. People look at you and they're kind of weepy and sad and they don't really understand why you're not. So every chance I got with a captive audience, I looked for opportunities to share my faith and to share why there was hope. And if cancer opens the door for that, I just want God to use it. 
We spend so much time worrying about the temporal and we forget about eternity. I think for me, I always knew I was gonna be healed. It's just, what, what is that healing? Is it physical healing here on earth or is it the ultimate healing? I wanna be thankful in all situations, in all circumstances. And it's not easy. I mean, it, it really isn't. You know, when you're, when you're not feeling well and you know, you, you know that you may not live, it's not always, you know, at a, at a high point. I don't know how people who don't have a faith, who don't have a church family to surround them, get through those situations. And I have stacks of cards, people praying for me, and that's powerful. Do I want to leave my family? Oh, absolutely not. And, and I don't want people to mistake that. But if that's what God chooses to call me home today, I haven't been cheated out of anything. And I, I just want people to not look at me and see Jim Hopper, cancer patient. That's really a side note, you know? I want them to see Jim Hopper, Christian. Cancer's something I had. It's not who I am.